Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My guest, Sabina Hassenfelder, is a German theoretical physicist, author, and musician who researches quantum gravity. She is a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies and has published more than 80 research articles about the foundations of physics. Her writing has been published in Scientific American, The New York Times, and The Guardian. In her newest book, Existential Physics, Sabina Hassenfelder takes on life's biggest questions. Sabina Hassenfelder, welcome. Hi, Nancy. I would like to go back to when you were about 14 years old, and you already were asking these big questions in life, and you asked your mother, what's the meaning of life? And what did your mother <laughs> reply? Yeah, uh, she said the meaning of life is, uh, for her, the meaning of life is to pass on knowledge to the next generation. And, um, you know, I think it wasn't so much that I was asking really deep questions. It was more that I like to annoy my mother. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, yeah, so my, my mom was a high school teacher. I should I, I should probably say this. She's now retired. But, um, yeah, so so this is what, what she was coming from. Uh, so passing on knowledge to younger people was the essence of her life, you could say. Well, you'd kind of expect that of a teacher to feel that that's the meaning of life for her was to pass on knowledge to the next generation. And then you become a scientist, a physicist, and you write this book called Existential Physics. And what are we laymen supposed to understand by existential physics? So existential physics, well, that's an interesting question because I didn't, uh, I didn't come up with the title. It was my, my editor. Um, the original title of the book was more than this, and my editor said, well, the word physics has to be in the title. And so he proposed existential physics, and I thought, that sounds great, but what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to make up. I had to make up something uh, for what uh, existential physics means. And basically, the way that I define it for myself is: uh, it's all the parts of physics that are important to understand the big questions of our existence. So that's stuff like: what are we made of? Uh, what is space? Uh, what is time? Uh, why does time ha have a direction? Uh, where does everything come from? Will we ever know everything? Uh, uh, those kinds of questions. Well, now you mentioned time, and uh, from what I've read, I I don't really understand if time is real, because it seems real to me. Yes, um, so there has been some discussion about it, but um, so I I always find it a little bit misleading the way it's being phrased. So, arguably, time is an experience that we really have. So on that basis, it's kind of obviously real. Um, we also have a notion of time in uh, general relativity, so Einstein's theory of gravity, in which time is the dimension. Um, and in, in that sense, too, I would say it's real because it's something that we really need in the theory to explain what we observe. But um, as you've probably heard, Einstein's theory of general relativity might not be the last word on space and time because it doesn't know anything about quantum mechanics. And we think that ultimately, eventually, we have to combine those two theories. And now some people say that in this to-be-found theory of quantum gravity, what it's what it's called, um, time might not be an element of the theory, but that instead the time that we experience um, ourselves is emergent. Uh, it might come out from something entirely different. Uh, one thing that people have proposed, for example, is that um, underlying this space-time which we use in general relativity, uh, there might just be some kind of network, um, like you know, nodes connected by links, and that approximates to good accuracy um, the space-time that we deal with in general relativity, but fundamentally that might not be correct, and so fundamentally time might actually not be real. Yeah, so, but to us, the past exists, but uh, you raise a question, does the past still exist? Yes, so um, this is an interesting question because... <laughs> 
is is one of those things that we learn as students when we first hear about special relativity that actually the past still exists in the same sense that the present moment exists uh, and then you know for some time we walk around like this can't possibly be correct and then we understand it's actually correct and we get used to it and I think we forget about it so partly I wrote about this because I wanted to remind myself of how amazing this was when I learned about it the first time so yes for all we currently know the past still exists it's one of the consequences of Einstein's theories of space and time it's also called the block universe. Um, it just means that the universe doesn't it doesn't come into being. It just sits there like a block already in place. And um, the the reason we think that in those in this theory the past that exists is because according to Einstein, it's impossible that everyone agrees on which moment is now. And indeed, every moment could be now for someone. So your past could be somebody else's present. And why, why should somebody else's present be any less real than your present? And this is why we think the past exists the same way as the present. My guest is physicist Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder, and she has written a book, Existential Physics. And you conclude your chapter one with what you're just saying, the future, the present, and the past all exist in the same way, according to the currently established laws of nature. So the details that make up you and use your grandmother, for example, the details that make up you and the story of your grandmother's life are immortal. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, Dr. Hassenfelder. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I, I'll admit I also find it hard to, you know, it, it's really, really difficult. Um, but I I have to admit I'm very much a maths person. <laughs> and uh, so if you look at it from the side of mathematics, I, it becomes a little bit more uh, digestible. So if you look at how the laws of nature that we currently use and the foundations work, they really just redistribute all the matter in the universe from one moment to the next. So um, if someone if someone dies, then um, the information about them that's in the configuration of the atoms that make up their body and their brain, um, it, it disperses into tiny correlations between atoms and uh, the quanta of light, and they slowly sp spread throughout um, the universe. Uh, so we can no longer access them, but they don't go away. They are still there. In chapter two, so you make that point that you use math to describe our observations. And um, you make the point that we improve scientific theories by simplification. And doctor, nothing you've been saying has sounded very simple. But you say we improve scientific theories by simplification, and we might never know which theory about how our universe began is correct, because we hear the, all these theories about how the universe began, and do you have one that you feel is correct? Not really. Um, the issue with the beginning of the universe is that if we use Einstein's theory of general relativity um, to try and understand what happens, uh, we run into a singularity in the mathematics. So um, basically the curvature of space-time becomes infinitely large and so does the energy density in the universe. And that's what the mathematics says. Um, but we think that this just means that the theory breaks down and it has to be replaced with a better theory. And, and that would be this theory of quantum gravity, which we still don't have. Um, so basically, the answer is we don't know what, what actually happened. Um, and but yeah, know, but that, that's what I settle on. <laughs> yeah. And yet, uh, when you read things, people talk about the Big Bang Theory as if, well, Everybody knows that's how the universe began with the Big Bang. And that seems to be the accepted uh, wisdom now, is it not? That that's how the universe began? I think there's a big confusion about what the word Big Bang means. Um, so historically, it was referring to the this initial singularity. Um, so actually the beginning of the universe. 
But um, over the course of time, uh, some science communicators or science popularizers, whatever you want to call it, um, have begun using the word Big Bang to refer to what actually happened much later. So it became to refer to just the expansion of the universe. But those are actually two separate things. So there's one thing is that the universe expands. We have very strong evidence for that. And the other is the question, how did it begin? And um, so if you conflate those two things, uh, you, you run into a, a lot of difficulties. So um, what, what I'm talking about when I say Big Bang is always this uh, initial event. Well, if the universe had a beginning, we uh, suspect, well, it must have an end. Do we have any notions about how it would end? Well, so um, the the reason that uh, we we get this Big Bang singularity is basically that time runs out. So um, the Big Bang, if you just look at what what the equations say, when you run into the singularity, uh, it it takes a finite amount of time. It's something like uh, thirteen point seven billion years in in the past. Now, when we look at the future, if we take the same equations and we run them forward into the future, there's no singularity, at, at least in the, in the simplest version of the equations, if we, if we just take them uh, the way that we currently think they're right. Um, there's no singularity. It just goes on forever, uh, but it becomes very boring, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, um I uh, would like to bring up the subject of atoms because uh, I always, as I was studying science, viewed uh, the structure of an atom like the structure of the solar system. And is that wrong now? Well, um, strictly speaking, yes, it's wrong. But it's also true that they do have some things in common. Um, and notably, it's that the electrons around the atomic nucleus, um, they're mostly bound by the uh, Coulomb force, which is a which is an uh, one over R square law. And um, the planets, um, when they orbit around the sun, are also bound by one over R squared force law, uh, just that in this case, uh, it's gravity. So uh, basically, the the constants which set the strength uh, is, is a different one. It's um, Newton's gravitational constant, and, it, and the strength also depends on the mass of the, of the planet and the sun, whereas for the atom, it depends on the charges, and then there's the fine structure uh, constant. But this is also where the similarities end, because um, in, an atom, in, a, in an atom, the uncertainty principle from quantum mechanics plays a much larger role. It's just because the, the atom is smaller. So um, in, in an atom, the electrons don't um, circle on orbits the way that planets do circle around the sun, or you know they, they go on ellipses, strictly speaking. Uh, but instead, they um, occupy um, shells, is what it's called, electron shells. Um, but they're not um, they're not infinitely thin, and they don't have very strict boundaries. So it's not it's not very good to think of an onion or something like this. They're more like fuzzy clouds that come in certain shapes. And size matters. Yes, yeah, size matters. So if you if you take uh, uh, the solar system and you just shrink it, uh, it it's not a good description for an atom. <laughs> My guest is theoretical physicist Sabrina Hassenfelder, and her book is Existential Physics. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, physicist Sabrina Hossenfelder, whose book is Existential Physics. And so we want to know uh, how the universe began or where did we come from? And can physics help us solve that riddle, where we come from? Well, depends on what exactly you mean by this. Um, so physics doesn't really say much about uh, life, about biology, um, and also about chemistry. You know, we leave this to the chemists. <laughs> um, so if you're asking about the origin of life, I, I'm afraid the answer is no. But if you're asking about uh, what did it take to form structures in the universe to begin with, like the preconditions for life, um, like that we have galaxies and there are planets in those galaxies, um, this is this is a case where physics can say something about. So we um, wonder about where we came from, and we would wonder then, well, where do we go? Yeah, but where do we go? So we, we already briefly touched on this question about the end of the universe. Um, and I was talking about the, the, the extrapolation of the equations that we currently have, which is the simple thing that we can do. But actually, physicists have thought up a lot of different ways to extrapolate those equations because they're very small modifications that you can make. Uh, for example, the fate of the universe depends very sensitively on whether the cosmological constant is actually really constant or whether it changes very slightly with time. Uh, it's because in, in, in the far future, this cosmological constant uh, is actually the most important um, energy contribution in, in the entire universe. So pretty much what happens depends on this constant. And uh, so the thing is, if this if this cosmological constant uh, were to vary very slowly, we wouldn't have noticed yet, just because the universe isn't old enough and we haven't measured it for long enough. Um, and in the long run, this small mistake can add up uh, to a huge uncertainty. So I would say really that we can't make any reliable prediction uh, for, for the really, really far future. And we're talking about hundreds of billions or trillions of years. The, this variation in the cosmological constant is only one example. There are other things that might become important on those really long timescales that we, that we don't actually know anything about. Uh, for example, the evap evaporation of black holes is one of those things where we have some idea how it works mathematically, but we have never tested it um, because um, the effect is just too small. So we can't really be sure what's what's actually happening. Well, I'd like to raise the question of free will because um, it seems like the future is determined by the past, according to the established laws of nature. So does that mean that free will does not exist? <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty big question. Well, before I get to this, uh, I, I have to add that um, if you take into account quantum mechanics, the future is not entirely determined by the past because in quantum mechanics, when you make a measurement, you can't predict the outcome. So you can only predict the probability of the outcome, but uh, just what the outcome will be is, at least if you believe in quantum mechanics, completely undetermined. So whenever there's a quantum event, that brings in an amount of randomness. So, so in that sense, the future is not entirely determined. Uh, on the flip side, uh, just in case you think this is where you can put in free will, um, we don't have any influence on what the outcome is. That's because nothing has any influence on what the outcome is. It, it's just completely random. But to come back to the question about free will, um, the, the problem with talking about free will is that uh, no two people mean the same thing by the word. Um, they all have some idea for what it means, but uh, what do we really mean by free? Free from what? Free to do what? And what is this will? Who's willing it? And if someone wills it, then how is it free? Um, and has consciousness something to do with it? If so, what is consciousness and so on? So, so this is like, this is a big rabbit hole. <laughs> um, and to avoid this problem, I'd, I'd just like to talk about what we know about the laws of nature that is relevant to the question of free will. And what we know is exactly what you said. It's, it's that the laws of nature are 
partly deterministic and partly random if you take into account uh, quantum mechanics. Uh, in the deterministic part, the future follows from the past without any wiggle room, and um, the random part from quantum mechanics brings, brings in this unpredictable quantum jump every once in a while. So does this mean that we have free will or that we don't have free will? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> My guest is Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder, and she is a physicist and has written a book, Existential Physics. And um, you raise the question, too, about the universe being able to think, because according to established laws of nature, the universe can't think. Is that accurate? Yeah, well, yes and no. So um, there's a standard argument that physicists make for why the universe can't think. Um, if you look at the laws of nature that we currently know, and it, to make a long story short, it's because it's too big. Uh, it just takes too long to send a signal from one side of the universe to the other. Um, so if, if the universe was trying to send some kind of signal from some part of its brain to the other side, uh, that would take bi billions of years. So if it does any thinking, uh, it can't think uh, a terrible lot. Now, this argument relies very strongly on the need to send information locally. So it has, if it wants to go from one place to another place, it has to go to, through all the space in between. Uh, and this is why it takes so long. But um, we don't actually know that when it comes to very short distances, this locality is really still a requirement. And the reason is, once again, that we don't actually know what space and time do on the quantum level, because we don't have this theory of quantum gravity. And indeed, um, there, <clears throat> excuse me, and indeed, there, there are some physicists who have um, suggested for one reason or another that in this more fundamental underlying theory, locality might actually work completely different. So basically, space-time could be sprinkled with wormholes that would make points that seem very far away for us be very close together if you are very, very small. <laughs> so when I say very, very small, I mean something like 10 to the minus 35 meters, uh, which, which is what we call the Planck scale. So we can't go through those links. Um, but space-time itself could use them to communicate with itself. And so just because the universe might have a lot of those connections and might be able to send information through them, doesn't mean it can think. Uh, I mean, to begin with, we don't really actually know what it takes to think. We don't really know what consciousness is. Uh, but at least it would have sufficiently many connections um, to resemble something like a brain. And I think I think that's quite a stunning insight. Yeah. In fact, I was too. You say in your book, the universe is similar to a brain. Yeah, so um, this was actually referring to a very interesting paper that uh, was a collaboration between an astrophysicist and uh, a neurobiologist. They analyzed the, the structure of the galactic filaments. Um, so this is like the distribution of galaxies and galaxy clusters. Uh, they form fairly long um, strings, you could almost um, say. It looks a little bit like a sponge. And um, the connectome. So this is the um, distribution of neurons in the brain and the connections between them. And uh, they found that, at least in a certain range of scales, they are actually quite similar. My guest is physicist Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder, and we are discussing her book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. And um, one question, uh, perhaps we think, well, are we just a bag of atoms? <laughs> Can we say that about ourselves? 
Well, you know, to some to some extent, the answer is obviously yes. Um, we we are back. We are bags of atoms. Um, we are made of particles, and uh, we know the laws of those particles. And uh, all our behavior comes from the behavior of those atoms, or actually the uh, particles that the atoms are made of. Uh, but but you could also say, to some extent, the answer is obviously. No, because the relevant part about you is not that you're made of atoms, even though you are, but it's the configuration of those atoms. It's what they can do. This is what makes you interesting. It's what it's what those atoms can do. You 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 can think, you can talk, you can you can have a podcast, um, and uh, so the 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 relevant point um, for for us is really the configuration of those atoms. Uh, and you could go even further and say, it's actually the information that you need um, to know exactly what the configuration of those atoms is. Well, uh, if we're a bunch of atoms, maybe there's a copy of us. Maybe there's a copy of me somewhere. Is that possible? <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it is possible. Um, we don't have we don't have any evidence for it, but we also can't rule it out. So it's it's a type of idea that um, my friend Tim Palmer called ascientific, and I, I really like this term because um, if you call it unscientific, it, it it sounds like it's wrong, like you're not using scientific methodology. But there are ideas like the idea that there's a copy of you somewhere out there because the universe might be infinitely large or maybe there are even other universes that um, we can neither confirm nor rule out um, and so I would say that's an ascientific idea you can believe in it if you want to uh, but you have to realize that there's no evidence that actually backs it up well um, there's a term multiverse and um, Stephen Hawkins uh, that comes to mind with the multiverse uh, what is a multiverse? Yeah, multiverse, um, that's a collection of universes. Uh, normally, it's a very large number, actually an infinite number. And to make matters more <laughs> confusing, there isn't only one multiverse, but there are actually multiple multiverses. Um, so, uh, if, for example, one of the one of the best known types of multiverse is that um, our universe was born out of a quantum fluctuation in, in a certain type of quantum field. Um, but this fluctuation didn't only happen once, uh, but it, it happens um, over and over and over again. And so big banks happen all the time and they continue to happen. And, and each time one of those quantum fluctuations gets large enough, a universe grows out of it. So this, this scenario is called um, eternal inflation. But there's also, for example, um, the many words interpretation of quantum mechanics, which says that Every time you make a quantum measurement that um, has has an ambiguous outcome, as we discussed earlier in quantum mechanics, you can only predict the probability for an outcome. Um, so in, in the many words interpretation, all of those possible outcomes actually happen, but each of them happens in its own universe. So the, the universe splits whenever you, ma you make a quantum measurement. Well, is there um, a creator for the universe? What does science <laughs> have to say about that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and I don't think anyone knows. Uh, could be. Again, I would say, like, this is an ascientific idea. We, we don't have any evidence for it, but we also don't have any evidence against it. Well, you also make the point that uh, we can't calculate measurements if we can't observe, if we can't measure what we can't observe. And a lot of what you're talking about sounds like we can't measure, <laughs> Dr. Hassenfelder. We can't measure. Well, there are some things that physicists talk about which uh, we can't measure. For example, those, those other universes. 
um, because they're, they're causally disconnected from us. Um, there's no way we can go there or see them in any way. We can't interact with them in any way, so we can't make any measurements. And this is exactly why I say it's an ascientific idea. It's, it's not that it's wrong, but since we can't test it, uh, it's it's not really scientific. You, you can believe in it uh, if, if you want to. So, yeah, f physicists are actually talking about things that, that we can't measure. Well... Are we humans predictable? Ah, well, yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, so, um, well, to, to some extent, the answer is obviously we can't predict human behavior at the moment. Like no one can actually practice do it. Uh, but this is also the boring answer. Um, I guess the the more interesting question is, can human behavior one day become predictable? And um, I suspect that the answer is um, is yes, uh, just because um, there's no particular reason why human behavior should not be possible to simulate on some kind of computer. And that alone doesn't mean that it's actually predictable, you would also have to run this simulation faster than the real thing, because otherwise, well, it'd be a post-diction, I suppose. Uh, but if you want a prediction, you would have to uh, know what the person is going to do before they actually do it. And um, the reason I think it, it'll probably one day become possible is just that I find it really hard to believe that the human brain is really the fastest possible way to do this calculation? Well, a lot of what I take as fact is based on my experience. But you say human experience is not a good guide to the fundamental laws of nature. So where does that leave us? Yes, um, we we know this from, from many examples the simplest examples is 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 probably optical illusions um we all fall for optical illusions even if we know they're illusions uh is that our brain um you know it, i think uh, it it means well so to say um we we're, we're overcorrecting um for something that um <clears throat> isn't really there um so a typical example is where we adjust the color uh, of some object, depending on what we infer about the lighting. So it's uh, stuff like this. And, and then we get, strictly speaking, we get the wrong answer. But it, but it would make sense if we would actually observe the object uh, in its natural environment. So this is an example where our senses just um, suggest false information. But we also know this from the foundations of physics, that there are cases where um, our own experience um, just doesn't fit very well with what we have extracted uh, from measurements. And we, we already talked about one of those examples, uh, which is our experience of the present moment as a special moment. Um, because according to Einstein's theory of relativity, it's not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, if that's true, then um, we only get older. Why don't why doesn't somebody ever get younger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so. This is it's one of those questions that keep me up at night, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, so we know we know part of the answer. Um, part of the answer for this, it, it's called the error of time. It's our experience that the past um, is different uh, from the future. Um, we part of the answer is uh, entropy increase, basically. So uh, entropy increase just means that uh, likely things are likely to happen and unlikely things are unlikely to happen. And this sounds like a tautology, and, and partly it is. Uh, but the thing is that we can use this to derive some things that are actually uh, observable, like the behavior of you know steam engines. So maybe a fridge actually is a, is an example where we use that kind of theory, and it works just fine. Um, so what it means is basically that um, if you start from 
a, a very special initial state. So a typical example would be uh, you're sitting in a room and all the atoms of the air are collected in a corner. Um, then what's very likely to happen is that all those atoms are going to spread out until they're evenly distributed in the room. And uh, this is entropy increase. And uh, this is what's going to happen, and it's not going to spontaneously reverse. Why not? Because it's incredibly unlikely. It's not that it can't happen, according to our theories. It's just so unlikely we never see it happening. And this explains part of the reason why we have an error of time. It's just that because that's the likely thing to happen. Things are likely to get more disorderly. Things are likely to break, but they are very unlikely to unbreak. Okay, so, so far so good. Um, but this brings up the question, if entropy is increasing all the time, and this explains why we experience this error of time, why was it small in the past to begin with? <laughs> the universe must have been born with an incredibly small entropy. And uh, if we make this assumption in our theories, then everything works just fine. It's called the past hypothesis. Um, but we don't actually know why this would have been the case. My guest is physicist Sabina Hassenfelder, and she has written a book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. And some, some of these questions, just my brain just can't seem to wrap itself around this information. And I feel like my brain is incapable of understanding some of this that I think, well, scientists say this is true. It must be true, but I find it hard to believe. How much are we capable of knowing, Dr. Hassenfelder? How much are we capable of knowing? Uh, you mean this like as a species, uh, how much we'll be able to figure out about the universe? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think it depends a lot on how smartly we use the current knowledge, because my, at least my personal um, perspective on science and knowledge discovery is that uh, it builds up gradually. Like if you look, if you look at our history, um, for example, think of the um, discovery of lenses and the first microscope and the first telescope. So they built these things and the first ones, um, you know, in, in all fairness, <laughs> you know, not, not to insult those people, but they were really crappy. <laughs> um, still, it was better than nothing. And uh, when they started using them, they learned more about how optics work and they saw new things. You know, they could see bacteria and they learned more about medicine and they learned to build better microscopes. And then they learned even more about the structure of matter. And um, then they built even better microscopes and they built even better telescopes and they learned more about the universe. And so you, you get this virtuous cycle where better observations lead to a better understanding of nature, which leads to better observations uh, and so on and so forth. And um, I, I think that the, the more difficult it, it becomes to make new observations just because the simple things have uh, now been done, the more careful we have to be with what is the next experiment uh, that we make. So we have to make our investments uh, smartly. And then we, I think we, we would be able to continue this uh, virtuous cycle uh, for, for a long time. But, but it really depends on how smartly we are with our investments in uh, science and technology. And also, of course, you know, we, um, we shouldn't ruin the planet first because <laughs> other, otherwise we can't do the experiments. <laughs> well, in addition to your book, you do have, you created a YouTube channel science without the gobbledygook because um a lot of what you've been saying it looks like you can't say with certainty well this is what we conclude uh right now uh so what are we left with dr hassenfelder Yes, that's right. So um, for a lot of what I talk about in the book, um, I'm basically just saying this is what we know right now. Um, this is what we're pretty certain of about those things we're not 
quite sure. And this is my personal conclusion. But now that I've, I've told you all that I know, you can come to your own conclusion. So I, I don't actually expect that anyone who reads the book <laughs> agrees with me on, on, on everything. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's called Science Without the Gobbledygook. And um, this channel was really, really conductive to um, writing this book because it's, it's helped me a lot um, deciding which questions to include. Basi I've basically included the questions that um, I saw from the feedback that I got to my videos mm -hmm. and also to some other writing. What are the questions that people are most interested in? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I would uh, suggest people, in addition to uh, reading your book, Existential Physics, that they might like to tune in to your YouTube channel, Science Without the Gobbledygook. So any parting words you have of, of wisdom for us, Dr. Hassenfelder? So one thing that I wanted to get across with the book is that physics is not just about the stuff that we learn about in school, you know, stuff like how do batteries work, uh, nuclear decay, balls rolling down inclined planes uh, and, and these things. But it's actually a really good tool to make sense of those big existential questions. Well, thank you, Dr. Hassenfelder. I'll remind listeners that uh, the book is Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions, and the author is physicist Savina Hassenfelder. Wonderful to talk to you. After a break, I'll be talking to proofreader Annie Cavanaugh, who will be reading poems from illustrator Lydia Cooley-Freeman. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. And now some poetry written by an illustrator named Lydia Cooley-Freeman. Here to read some of Lydia's poems, which she called haikus, is Chico Human Resources Advisor Annie Cavanaugh. Annie Cavanaugh, welcome. Thank you, Nancy. Now, since you aren't the poet, what was your relationship to Lydia Freeman? Well, when I was young, Lydia and her husband, Don Freeman, who was the author of Corduroy, took me in when my mother was ill, and I became very close to Lydia. And recently, her son asked me to take a look at this book that he was compiling of her poetry and watercolors that she called Doodles. Um, that she created at the end of her life. So you, your relationship really, you were a friend and um, you, she thanks you in her book, thanks you for proofreading. And you actually, you, I mentioned you're a human resources advisor and a public sector consulting agency here in Chico. So uh, how did you uh, get that privilege, I would call it, of proofreading? Well, Roy is in Zurich, Switzerland, and he started working on... And you might remind us who Roy is now. Oh, yeah. Roy is her son. Mm -hmm. Roy Freeman is her son. And she died many years ago, but he uh, he was compiling this work and just asked me to take a look at it. And I said, well, I just happen to love proofreading. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went through it word by word with him, and we just really had a wonderful collaboration in creating this book. 
Well, it's kind of a long title, the collection of this this poetry is. And uh, did she, was that her title that she came up with? Oh, yes, that was her title. Well, tell us what the title of this collection is. Mm -hmm. Flowers of Unknown Origin, Dance of the Forbidden Vegetables. It's kind of an unusual title. You've got flowers and vegetables in the title. Um, did she explain how she came up with that title, or did you understand it? No, not really, <laughs> but it's in some of the poetry. Well, you mentioned that she um, she died some years ago. Mm -hmm. The very first poem in her book is entitled Being 80. Would you read that poem for us, Annie? Yes, I'd be glad to. Being 80. The subject is being 80. The blue hour alone on this ebony pebbled beach. Okay, so a couple of things there, just in this short poem. She mentions the color blue and describe the facing page for us. Oh, it's just you this exquisite. I know. It's, well, everything about Lydia is exquisite to me, but it's just this exquisite blend of blues and greens. It's just a lovely painting. And she says, alone on this ebony pebbled beach. And then how is she familiar with a pebbled beach? Well, okay, so Lydia was an introvert, and she would cherish things, pebbles, anything beautiful. I can still remember her picking up, her hands were a little arthritic, a little bent, but I have an image of her fondling pebbles, and we, we lived in Santa Barbara, so there were beaches, and um she would just really <laughs> contemplate the beauty of whatever was around her. So this ebony pebbled beach. Alone on this. Yes, alone beach. on this. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, she has flowers and vegetables in the title of her book. So we wouldn't be too surprised that uh, the next poem I'm going to ask you to read has the word garden in its title. Mm -hmm. Would you read that one for us? Yes. The garden fence, garden fence awry, mischievous winds torment the dying leaves, and the flowers of unknown origin are crying again. So there is the title, that phrase, flowers of unknown origin. Mm -hmm. And what medium, what did she use for her illustrations, Annie? They are all watercolor. And this is one of... Uh, a fantastical seed object with a, a, a seed sprouting and growing leaves. Well, the um, you mentioned she was somewhat of an introvert. Mm -hmm. So it might not surprise us that she has a poem entitled This Solitude. Would you read that one for us? Yes. And this was after Don Freeman died. Her husband. Right. This solitude, I asked for it, this solitude, unaware that my other selves would come along, some I had not met before and will not have the time to know. This is Human Resource Advisor Annie Cavanaugh She's here in Chico, and she's reading from a collection of poems, which the poet herself called haikus. And um, the poet was also an illustrator. And so facing each page with the, her poems are watercolor illustrations. Now, um, she has a poem called No Net. Would you read that one for us? Yes. No Net. And this illustration is amazing. It's a sort of like a pomegranate, a swirling abstract pomegranate. No net. There is no bridge to the far side of love. Taught with risk, only a lone tightrope spans the abyss. Once committed, I brave crossing it. Dear God, there is no net. 
how do you suppose she came up with that concept? <laughs> I, I think truly loving her husband <laughs> and just the immensity of what it takes to love another human being. Dear God, there is no net. Yeah, and there is no bridge to the far side of love. So it helps that you mentioned she had lost her husband. Her husband had died. Mm -hmm. And she says, there is no net. Well, yeah. she has a, a poem called Punctual. And what does she write in Punctual? And what is the illustration across from Punctual? Punctual, uh, again, an abstract of just a lot of activity. Then <laughs> uh, so here's the poem, Punctual. Punctual on the unimportant, tardy on the essentials. <laughs> yeah. One thing, too, that I like about her illustrations is um, they're not, I mean, some illustrators, there are a lot of squares and straight lines, and hers are very pleasing, soothing, rounded lines. Right. I could actually say a little bit more about Punctual and my experience of Lydia. She was always the one taking care of the repairs on the houses. They had a house and then an art studio on the other side. And, and there was always repair and business to be done and this and that. And she always felt that she wasn't focusing enough on her creativity and artwork. And I'm sure this was uh, an expression of that lifelong tension because her artwork was essential to her. Yeah, she says... Punctual on the unimportant, tardy mm -hmm. on the essentials. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you, Annie, for joining us today and reading some of what your friend Lydia called haikus. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Again, the title of the collection of poems, Flowers of Unknown Origin, Dance of the Forbidden Vegetables, and the poet is Lydia Cooley Freeman. I would also like to thank my first guest, theoretical physicist Sabrina Hassenfelder, whose book is Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.